Jewish homes fired, women beaten. Berlin, Thursday night. All over Germany tonight, the Jews are cowering in terror. Their shops are wrecked and looted. Their synagogues are burning. Their homes are at the mercy of gangs drunk with destruction. Not even the proclamation of Dr. Goebbels, the pro propaganda minister, broadcast this afternoon and again tonight, ordering the stoppage of pogroms, could curb the madness of the mobs. The wave of violence sweeping through the cities has moderated now only for lack of further damage to be done. So dangerous did the situation become in Berlin that at 8 o'clock the entire police force were called out. They were reinforced by hundreds of black guards. But the wrecking and pillaging went on until even the Nazi gangs were exhausted by their orgy. Beaten up. Jews who had managed to elude their persecutors earlier in the day were hunted out and beaten up. Crouching fearfully in corners, they anxiously await the next stroke of the terror. The anti-Jewish decrees already threatened, following on the assassination of von Raet, the embassy official in Paris. This is the Daily Express, November 11th, 1938. Wow, that really sets a tone for what we're speak on. Welcome in, listeners, to the Come to Life podcast with Peter Brinkerhoff and myself, Larry Sherfield. I am pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Jason Hinsley, PhD. He's a professor of religion and Holocaust studies at Gratz College in Cal Lutheran. He frequently lectures about the Holocaust as well as the Bible, Christianity, Judaism, and related topics throughout North America. Holds a master's in education from California State University, Northridge, a master's in Holocaust and genocide studies from Gratz College. He is also a fellow of the Michael LaProd, I hope I'm saying that right, Jason, Holocaust Education Institute of, of the Anti-Defamation League, an award-winning author of 10 books, two of which are about rescue during the Holocaust. His work has been featured in the Huffington Post as well as the BBC, and he was a historical advisor for a documentary about Christian acts of rescue in the Holocaust. So, welcome, Dr. Hensley, and uh, thank you for being here, and um, if you could, uh, Maybe talk about the what was happening and what was the stage that we were seeing set there in that article. Thank you, Peter. So that article was describing what has come to be known as Kristallnacht or the November Pogrom. It was November 9th and 10th, 1938. It was really the first organized attack in Germany. Uh, it also took place in Czechoslovakia. Um, it was the first organized attack against the Jews. So there were sporadic instances of violence, but this was the first government-sponsored attack. Uh, and as, as you had read, it, it came supposedly at the instigation of an assassination of a German official in France, um, which, which really had come because the, the, the young Jewish man whose family had... Uh, they were Polish, they had been brought into the border between Germany and Poland in a sort of no-man's land. Germany had taken away any possibility of citizenship. Poland refused to give them citizenship. This man was very upset. Um, Herschel Grinsman was his name. And uh, so he went into the German consulate in France and found the first official he could and shot him. And 
The German government decided that that was the time to retaliate, that it was their opportunity to really do whatever they could against the Jews. They'd been waiting for a time like this. A secret memo went out uh, for officials to inspire the populace to create a uh, spontaneous pogrom, and that took place on those nights. It was, it was those nights, November 9th and 10th, that a number of Jews realized that Germany was changed forever and that it was time to get out. Sure, and, and obviously a lot of this came on, um, on the heels of manifestos and things like Mein Kampf and things too, right? That the groundwork is already being laid out for years part of this, yes? Yes, yes, that is right. So, so there was always anti-Jewish propaganda that had been coming out of the Nazi party and, and out of Hitler's, from Hitler's pen or from his speeches as well. Uh, that got toned down a little bit at the beginning of his early politicking career. But uh, 19, 1938 was really the time when people realized that they couldn't just wait anymore in Germany and wait for things to change. Uh, and that was, that was essentially what brought about what we'll be talking about with the kinder transport because families, there was an urgency after Kristallnacht. There was an urgency that people hadn't felt before because they thought we could wait it out. You know, Jews had had a hard time in numerous countries. They'd been expelled. Their pogroms had, been, had happened against them throughout uh, Eastern Europe. And so it was kind of felt for a while, well, you know, things, things will change, give it time. People, Germany is, is a civilized country, quote, and uh, Hitler's not going to be able to get this anti-Semitism to really manifest itself. You know, there's going to be on and off sporadic attacks, but when it was a countrywide assault and destruction of Jewish property. It was, uh, I mean, Kristallnacht was, was an astonishing thing for the Jewish community in Germany. It was, it was 30,000 Jewish men who were arrested. Um, 100 synagogues were burned. It, it was, people, people struggled to get their mind around the fact that their neighbors were breaking into their home and people who had been their friends were now taking their things, throwing it everywhere, destroying their stuff. So it, it was a big deal, a really, really big deal, and that was, it was the turning point, and it is what led not only in the Jewish community, but also in the international community to efforts like the kinder transport. Sure. And so Larry alluded to or, or, or mentioned in the intro that you'd written, you know, 10 books, is it? Is that correct? Yes. So, and two of which we primarily come here to talk about tonight. And so what, what are those two books? So the books are called Part of the Family, and they are about the Christadelphians and their involvement in rescuing Jewish children from the Holocaust via the kinder transport. Yep. And uh, they're, they're fantastic books and yeah. And kinder transport being, well, child transport, right? So we're talking about. That's right. Uh, and these are, these are Jewish children who otherwise would have ended up 
concentration camp. Is that right? For the most part, yes. Unless they had figured out, unless their family had figured out some kind of way to escape between 1938 and the onset of, of war, 1939. Um, yeah, if, if their families hadn't been able to figure something out like that, it is highly likely that that the children would have also gone to a concentration camp and, and a number of their families did and did not survive. Uh, the Christadelphian community, um, well, well, obviously part of it, but how, how big is this, this kinder transport? Transport's an interesting story. It, it started in December of 1938 really as a response. It was Great Britain's response to Kristallnacht. So the international community was just shocked by what Germany had done. And Germany, as I had said, was considered a, quote, civilized nation, and how could anything like that happen in a nation like this? And so Parliament ended up passing a, a resolution that, the, that Great Britain was willing to take in an unspecified number of children. And they would only take in children because it was the Great Depression, oh, and yeah. so they didn't want any adults to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. But children couldn't work, so yeah. you could bring children over. And uh, Parliament had said any, any amount of children that can come, that can find a sponsor, can come. We'll open up the country to them. Wow. Interestingly, I, I don't know if this is relevant, but I'll say it. and You can cut it out please. if you want. Yeah, please go. But uh, um, the United States had a similar bill sponsored in Congress. It was by uh, Senator Robert Wagner. And um, he had suggested that 20,000 children come to the United States. It was called the, uh, the Wagner-Rogers Bill. And um, the bill didn't even get through committee in Congress. Oh, so it's a very strong contrast between the UK and the United States. So on that note, we had discussed offline um, Germany's attempts to maybe we could talk about that for a minute before we dive, you know, go further into it. But Germany's attempts to ask the world to take the Jews from Germany. Um, I know, I know uh, Australia's response to that. Uh, maybe we could talk about that for a minute. Um, kind of paint the picture for some of that. That was prior to nineteen thirty. So there's, correct? yeah, the there's a few helpful pieces of information for putting together kind of a picture of what was going on in Germany and internationally in the 1930s. So the Great Depression was taking place, and n not only that, but there was a, a very strong feeling of xenophobia kind of throughout the world, also very much in the United States. Uh, xenophobia, anti-Semitism. So it was recognized, even back into the 1920s, uh, it was recognized that in the United States that people would want to come into this country. And so because of that, as more and more immigrants came in, people became bothered by that. You know, there were a, a number of Catholics who came in, Irish people, you know, they, a lot of Irish are Catholics, but it... Uh, Sometimes people people would say we don't like Irish, or they'd say we don't like Catholics. So there was that. There was there was anti-Semitism as well uh, in the 1920s, and so because of that, Congress started to pass resolutions that began to limit and limit immigration to the United States, and in introducing a quota system. Um, and and previously in 1918, there was a 
a uh, immigration bill that introduced a clause called the LPC clause, or likely to become a public charge clause. Hmm. And so that, okay. that just kind of sat there and didn't really do anything until the late 1920s, um, because in the late 1920s, as the Depression came in, and immigrants were still attempting to come into the United States, uh, officials within the State Department recognized that this LPC clause could effectively prevent most immigration. Uh-huh. So the, the LPC clause essentially said that if somebody was deemed likely to become a public charge, they were not welcome in the country. So there, were, there was a set of quotas, right? Yeah. So each country could only bring this many people into the United States. And then on top of that, whoever was going to be accepted within that quota system couldn't meet the LPC okay. clause. Um, so the LPC clause really um, sh- shut down immigration because it meant that whoever was going to immigrate into the United States had to have a job, which wasn't going to happen because it was the Great Depression, right. yeah. or yeah. or had to have somebody who said, I will take care of you and your family indefinitely until you find a job, Yeah, which also wasn't going to happen. Like sponsor. Yeah, a, yeah, a sponsor who was willing to to yeah. sponsor them for an indefinite period of time. So that was kind of the situation in the United States, and a lot of that same kind of anti-immigrant feeling was really pervading um, much of the Western world. So in 1938, President Roosevelt called a conference to address Jewish immigration. That's called the Evian Conference. So that was 1938. It was in Evian in France. And numerous countries came, and that is where the, the quote that you're referring to about Australia, that's where yeah. that, that came from. Yeah. Um, so it was at this conference that there was a lot of talk, what do we do about Jewish immigrants that are attempting to leave Germany? And uh, basically everyone said, well, we don't want them. Now, that, that's a generalization. There was one group there was one country that was willing to take in Jewish immigrants, and it was the Dominican Republic. <laughs> That's right. I remember you saying that. Yes, and that and that whole story is very strange too, because the the dictator of the Dominican Republic was Rafael Trujillo, who uh, had just essentially committed some form of mass murder on his own citizens, and was attempting to for lack of better words, to add more whiteness to his population, which is why he wanted Jews to move there. Oh, Jews okay. from Europe. Jews from Europe. So okay. it's, a, it's a very, very weird kind of yeah. story. Yeah, it's interesting, too. Um, we, hear, we hear, oftentimes we hear systemic racism used in political or uh, whatever speech now, you know, we talk about, we hear that phrase, um, you know, systemic racism, but what we're talking about was true systemic racism. Um, and, and Australia's response at the time was when asked if they could take the, some Jews was we don't have a, we don't have a race problem and we don't want one. And yeah, it was a, it was a very, very strong prejudice that was international. And that's, what's very, that's what's very striking about this whole story. So when Hitler came to power in 1933, that was the situation throughout much of the Western world, that there was also anti-Semitism there. Yeah. 
In fact, in 1938, just after Kristallnacht, Father Charles Coughlin, um, he was a radio priest in the United States. Uh, he had a huge following, 30,000 listeners. And one of the things he is noted for saying in his show after hearing about Kristallnacht was, when we get done with the Jews here, they're going to think that what they experienced in Europe was nothing. Oh. Okay. So you can, you can just see that wow. that kind of racism, prejudice, that was very strong in a lot of places. Um, Hitler refers to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. He uses this, this propaganda piece. It's a fake. It's yeah. not even a real thing. Yeah. But it's, it's about supposedly how Jews are going to take over the world. Um, and, and he quotes it in Mein Kampf. He refers to it in Mein Kampf. And Henry Ford is known for printing and distributing copies of it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was a very, very strong kind of thing throughout the United States, throughout much of the Western world, um, anti-Semitism was. And so the Nazis were able to use that as they conquered countries in Europe. So how much of that do you think actually came from another, you know, another thing prior to Germany um, in World War II and during that time period, too, was um, post-World War I, the Versailles Treaty and everything that happen, happened to Germany um, and uh, they're limiting their military and all these things and their, their economic conditions that they were in. How much of what you think came about was easier to have like the race, the systemic, the national racism against the Jews um, was because a lot of people wanted to point a finger and have somebody to blame and the Jews became that group. Is there any, is there any truth to that? I'm, I'm not saying it is. I'm, I'm purely speculating. So there's a few different things to say. I think first off, in one of the things as a historian that I have found really helpful to remember is that everything is more complicated than it seems. And that, I think, is a really, really powerful thing to keep in mind when studying because as humans, we like to simplify things. And when we recognize that everything is multifactorial, everything is multi-causal, I think that that can really affect how we perceive the world and how we, how we treat others. So I, I want to put that out there first. Um, so I would say, as far as, as far as what you're asking here about the Treaty of Versailles and, and looking for someone to point the finger at, yes, I would say that probably was a factor in the Holocaust but it was, it was just one sure. factor, right? So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, the question that I found myself consistently wondering in relation to what you just asked was if that's the case, that the economic situation was so bad in the 1920s and a number of Germans were looking for a scapegoat, I think the question becomes... Why was it specifically the Jews? And that, to me, was was really a, a driving question. And what, <laughs> so what, I, so and what conclusions have you well, arrived? Are you at? speaking of historically or biblically? I think yeah, historically is kind of what I'm looking at. It's mm-hmm. um, I, I guess again I, I don't want to create an oversimplification. 
Um, Hitler didn't like a lot of people. <laughs> so that's, right. that's yeah. an important thing as well to keep in mind with this. So he definitely had a hierarchy of races in his mind. Um, so racism really was this idea of different races uh, and different moral qualities associated with those races really came out in the 1800s. So that was kind of a pseudoscience that was invented in the 1800s. Hitler latched onto that and created this hierarchy of races in which Germans were at the top, or Aryans, yeah. right? Aryans were at the top. And then near the bottom were Slavs, so like um, like Poles. So he ended up mm. committing mass murder against a number of Polish people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then blacks and Jews. So I guess really the question is why did he see Jews as at the bottom? Um, and uh, it's hard to know, you know, where did... Where did Hitler's feelings come from? But I guess what, what I found troubling at, in looking at this topic was that Hitler very much used Christianity in order to harness Germany's populace. So in 1925, Germany was identified, Germans identified, 90% of them did as Christians. Uh, you know, it's the the birthplace of Lutheranism. Right, yeah. yeah. So it was a very strongly identifying Christian nation. And uh, one of the things that Hitler is, is quoted as saying is, this is how the church treated the Jews for hundreds of years. Now, he's not referring to the death camps, but he's referring to the persecutions in the 1930s. This okay. is how the church treated the Jews. For hundreds of years, you would think that the church would be grateful and feel as though I'm doing them a favor. Does any of it go back to possibly um, in, in that Christian regard? Because I've also actually heard the Ku Klux Klan believes part of this too, is that the Jews are responsible for the, the death of Christ. And is there, I can't, I've read, I've read Mein Kampf, it was a long time ago and it was a difficult read. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hitler does make that connection. Okay. Yes. Yes, he says, um, essentially, that in return for rebuking the Jews, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Um, so he makes that connection. A number of Christian um, leaders at the time made that connection. The, I think the, the, the difficult piece in all of this, what made that accusation, which what really gave it force, yeah. was this belief in the deity of Jesus. So within Christianity, within much of mainstream Christianity, Jesus is seen as being um, one with God in substance. And so because of that, when Christians taught that Jews crucified Christ, what was implicitly understood in this was that Jews crucified God, which created a force behind that charge that was that couldn't be argued against. It was it was this idea that this was the ultimate sin. How could a group of people kill God? Well, the the answer that Christians came to in the Middle Ages was they must be of the devil. Jews must really be demonic. And so all kinds of, of charges against Jews came
came out from that belief. Charges like Jews were actually born with horns mm-hmm. and hooves, um, all, all kinds of things like that, and that, that every year at Passover time, they try and replay the crucifixion by kidnapping and killing a Christian child. Wow. All, all kinds of things like that. And so Christian communities in numerous places would, during the Middle Ages, attempted to kill the Jews in the Jewish community because, wow. you know, they didn't want their kids to be kidnapped or those kind of things. And so Christianity has a very, very troubled relationship with the Jewish community, particularly uh, as it was within Europe because of that history from medieval times. It sounds like superstition and folklore. Yeah, and you know, that was was very powerful back then Mm. at the time. We're still susceptible to it now. We still see some of these things people still are along those lines, QAnon and so forth. And you'll still hear things like that about Jews in certain countries. Yep. Blood blood libel, which is what I was talking about. Jews drink the blood of, of Christian children and all of that kind of thing. The last charge in a Western nation was actually in the early 1900s, uh, although Germany, you know, said, I guess I shouldn't say the last charge in a Western nation. It was Germany used it too, supposedly, but uh, um, so it, it still is a thing from the last century, which is kind of incredible. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately in history, there are several groups that have used the Bible to explain and, and justify their... Um, hatred toward a, a set of people that are different um, for some kind of gain, what, whatever it might be. You see, in, in the United States and the South, even, um, with, with some segregation there. So sort of, I guess, sort of like, like that, but um, not as far as trying to wipe out a whole, uh, you know, a, a whole race of people. Or yeah. Unbelievable. I just can't, it's hard to imagine that that, that, that actually happened. Um, it's a, I think what, it, what this really brought me to was I began to wonder what was the origin of this hatred, mm-hmm. right? So I, I was asking why the Jews, and then what was the origin of this hatred? And again, everything is multifactorial. Everything is more complex. But I was very intrigued by the connection that Christian history had to anti-Judaism. And I found myself going back and back, and it was really stunning to look at quotes from Christian, early Christian leaders. So like John Chrysostom, he was the archbishop of Constantinople in the 400s. And one of the things he is quoted with saying was that the Jews in his day were fit for killing. So that was, he, he had said that, and then he quoted a parable where Jesus says, as for my enemies, bring them here and slay them before me. And so what you see with a lot of this Christian animosity is an actual use of the Bible to justify what is being said. So Peter, like what you referred to about this idea of the Jews crucifying Jesus, right? Yeah. It's this use of biblical stories or biblical narratives, sometimes biblical passages, to really support something that the Bible doesn't actually support. Oh, yeah. And so, so a lot of my work has been focused on what, what is the Bible actually saying in those passages, right? Because there is 
There is one passage in which Jesus says to a group of Jews, you are of your father, the devil. And it's from John chapter 8. And this passage was actually put on signs throughout Germany by Hitler. So the Jews are of their father, the devil. That's what it said, you know, and somebody's driving down the road, and that's like the billboard on the side of the road. Yeah. And, and, you know, people knew, oh, this is a Bible verse. So you can see how he very much harnessed Christianity yeah. to, in order to, to support what he was trying to achieve. And to manipulate the populace that was 95% Christian. Yes, that's right. So yeah. they look at it, they say, oh, here's the Bible verse, right? Yeah. And the Bible verse doesn't say the Jews are of their father, the right. devil. It says you are of your father, the devil, yeah. right? But Jesus was talking to a group of Jewish people. So, so yeah. you know, Hitler, that's what happens, though. All of these quotes get taken out of their context and out of, you know, Hitler doesn't say, oh, and by the way, four chapters earlier, like, the Gospel of John calls Jesus a Jew too. Yeah. Right? You know, he's not going to say that. He actually argued that Jesus wasn't Jewish. So you can see this, there's this like weird use of the Bible solely for his purposes. Sure. And only when he can manipulate it mm-hmm. to say what he wants and to get the people to do what he wants. Yeah. So, why the Jews? And I guess we can come back around now to the kinder transport and kind of come back around to who do we as Christadelphians believe the Jews and the Jewish race? Who do we believe they are? What's our relationship to them? And why, why is this one of the only times in history that the Christadelphians got involved with helping people in a refugee status actually leave where they needed to be. So I, know I kind of threw a few things out of there. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> well, I mean, I have, I have a few answers here for this All or a right. few thoughts. Uh, first, I think what uh, something that I want to bring out that I think is really helpful, particularly for today and all of the different terms that are being used as about racism and whatnot, is I think it's helpful to recognize that this idea of a Jewish race uh, really comes out of like the 1800s because for years and years Judaism has been understood as a religion and I think that that's Mm -hmm. an interesting piece that relates a lot to this story that this is really a religious story now what I mean by that is it's a religious story because going back to those texts those biblical texts that we were talking about the Christadelphians became involved here because the Christadelphians felt connected to the Jewish religion. The reason that they felt that was because of the way that they read the Christian scriptures, so or, or what, what Christians typically call the, the New Testament. Um, so I want to I back up and kind of explain that a little bit more too. Sure. So, so I've been referring to the way that Hitler used the New Testament or the Christian scriptures, and he used it to manipulate a populace to attack the Jews. And for a number of years, there were a lot of anti-Jewish interpretations of the New Testament, as I had said. Uh, One of the things that I have been trying to do is to go back and look at how would a first century Jewish audience have understood the New Testament? Because that's who a lot of the audience was. 
Uh, so things like what Jesus was saying, how would that be interpreted by a first century Jewish audience? Or uh, um, just what would these words have meant to their recipients? And I think that that's really crucial for us because if we want to understand what was the meaning, what did the author mean behind these words, we have to know how would these words have been understood? What was the intention behind them? Okay, so with, with that said, there's some very, very powerful statements made in the New Testament about Judaism. So Paul says, in reference to traditional Judaism, he says, I could wish that I were accursed for the sake of my brethren. He says that at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. That eventually leads, in Romans chapter 11, to him saying, has God cast away his people? Now, he asks this question, and he's talking specifically about the Jewish religion. Has God cast away his people? And the Greek there, it's a really interesting phrase, it's meganoito, is the Greek. And that is basically the, one of the strongest negations of anything that you can say. And so if you look at a number of Bible translations, the King James will say, God forbid. Some newer translations will say, certainly not. And you can sense the translators struggling on how do we basically translate this phrase that says, how could you even think that, <laughs> right? Yeah, is, yeah. is basically like what Paul is getting at. So I think that that's a really crucial context. And the reason that Paul is saying that is because he is writing in the context of the Jewish scriptures. So there can't be, I mean, when, when the Jewish scriptures are seen as the context of the New Testament, there can't possibly be any way that the New Testament is against Judaism because that's its foundation, Yeah. right? Right, yeah. And, and I mean, it's there in, in Jeremiah 31 when God says, if you can break my, my covenant with the sun and the moon and prevent the sun from coming up in the morning, then I'll break my covenant with the Jews. Right. Right, like, yeah. so I think... I think ultimately what this comes down to is the importance of trying to understand what did these passages originally mean and reading them contextually like that because when we do so, we realize that Christianity for hundreds of years got it wrong about the Jews. And I think for Christadelphians, one of the unique things about Christadelphians as a group, and, you know, it's not solely unique to them. There were a number of other Christian groups that felt this way. Sure. But uh, uh, Christadelphians were founded with a book called Elpis Israel, and Elpis in Greek translates to hope. This is the hope of Israel. Yeah. So Christadelphians very much felt that recognition that the faith of Christians has been built upon Judaism, and there was an indebtedness and a gratefulness to the Jewish religion for that. So, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how does Scripture inform us on what our view should be of Israel today, and then, of course, looking forward and, and to God's kingdom? So, I think there's, there's two things here that I want to say. The first is that I think that what we see from history is the importance of contextual interpretation, the importance of really going back and saying, does this interpretation fit biblically? Does it, 
does it actually, you know, there's many different ways that you can understand a passage. Does this fit with other things that are written in the Bible, or is this creating a contradictory interpretation? Because beliefs affect actions. Right, so and that's and we've seen no examples you've given how easily it is for someone, a charismatic leader, to misuse yes. scripture and indoctrinate people, basically, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So I think it's it's really important for each individual to ask, is this interpretation that I'm putting on this passage, is this a sound interpretation, or is it just what someone told me? Where where is this actually taken from? How does this how does this fit with what else is going on within that passage? And and asking those kind of questions. So that's that's really the first thing. The the second thing is I think when you look at the way that Judaism is addressed in the Christian scriptures, you have some very powerful images that are given. So for instance, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sons. So sometimes it's called the parable of the prodigal son, hmm. but uh, I think lost sons is probably a more helpful title yeah. because you have a younger son who leaves and an older son who stays, but both are lost. There's different characterizations that you can have for those, those two sons as far as who they represent, but I think that one of the interpretations that fits is to recognize that Christians are the younger son hmm. and those who follow Judaism as the elder son. Now, the reason, the reason I'm saying that, you can, you can go through and you can look at the parable and there's, there's a lot of different connections and a, a lot of interpreters make that connection too. But uh, my point in that mm-hmm. is that Jesus very clearly, if that interpretation is sound, very clearly identifies Christians and Jews as one family. Wow. That they are one family under one father. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean that like the relationship between the two brothers wasn't awesome. Like they they don't really interact at all yeah. in in that. But I think it's important to see that that there is this assertion being put forth that you are both with the same father. Yeah. So that's that's a, a crucial piece. And and Paul does the same thing. If you look at Galatians chapter 4, he's, he's writing to a group of Christians in Galatia, and he says, uh, those of you who want to go back to the law, so who want to live under the law of Moses, do you not hear the law? And he goes on and he tells this allegory. He says, because the law presents two women, Hagar and Sarah. He says, Hagar had one child, Ishmael. Sarah had one child, Isaac. And he identifies Ishmael with traditional Judaism, and he identifies Isaac with Christianity, the child of promise. And he says, you are the, the children of promise. But I think the, the side point that comes out of that is it's the same thing as what Jesus did in Luke 15, that he just now took Ishmael, who was one brother, and Isaac, who was another brother, and, and he identifies Judaism and Christianity, again, as part of one family. Now, that's not to say that Ishmael and Isaac had an awesome relationship either, right? But that uh, that I think you know that would 
ultimately be the goal to have a good relationship between Christians and Jews. Mm -hmm. And I think that what Paul is is bringing out is a recognition that these two religions are related and connected and that there should be an appreciation on Christianity's part for the fact that it's Christianity has Jewish roots. So as far as what is that, how does that impact today? Well, I think that should impact how Christians see themselves, right? Yes, yes, they're Christians, but, you know, Jesus, Jesus worshipped at the temple. Jesus wore fringes on his clothes. Like, he did all kinds of, of Jewish things. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what Christians should do, too. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I, ta- the time definitely changed from Jesus onto the uh, apostles. Yeah. But it's, it's a recognition that Christianity grew out of Judaism. And so, therefore, there is this connection between Christians and Jews, rather than uh, a contention, <laughs> rather than this almost like, it was almost like Christianity had a sort of jealousy or something for years and years of, of Judaism and felt like it, it needed to be fought against. But uh, it's really more, more like a, it, it should be a, a thankfulness yeah. that Christians were able to take part in Judaism. If you read through the Talmud, it's, it's just it's fascinating to see that one of the things that Judaism does frequently, at least rabbinic Judaism, mm-hmm. which is another sect of, of Judaism, is uh, it always discusses the law and, and goes back and forth. And so, you know, one rabbi will say, well, this is what the law means. And another will say, no, it doesn't. It means this. And another will say, no, it means this. And there's this big discussion that's been written down. And I think Jesus's, Jesus would have fit into that context remarkably huh. well. Yeah. It would have been, you know, when he stands up and he says, why do you circumcise your son? Moses allowed you to circumcise your son on the eighth day, but you are not letting me make a man whole on the Sabbath, yeah. right? And, and that would have been just like those kind of debates that would have taken place about the Torah. Right. I think there's a uh, there's very much a, a helpful context to kind of put together, and so yes, I think there would have been opposition to to Jesus and his followers, but it also would have been uh, less unique, perhaps, than I think Christians often tend to see it yeah. as. Um, and that that again, I think, places Jesus very much in that Jewish context of he was a rabbi that went around from synagogue to synagogue and went to the temple and, and taught, and it wasn't anything strange. Yeah. You know, he had his own teaching, he had his own flavor, and it, and it fit and within that Jewish context at the time. Yeah. Um, so for the listeners, we're going to uh, start bringing the first episode of the discussion on the kinder transport to a close uh, by by finish maybe a, a synopsis perhaps uh, Dr. Hensley of of the stage that has been set for what will lead into the kinder transport yeah good idea we've, we've gone a lot of different routes here so essentially um, there were a lot of different factors 
that worked together to lead up to the Holocaust. I think by no means should it be said that Christianity was responsible for the Holocaust. I do think it is important to recognize that the misuse of Scripture that had happened under the auspices of Christian groups through the Middle Ages and up to the time of the, of the Holocaust and the misuse of Scripture by the Nazis made the Holocaust easier or encouraged people to participate in the Holocaust. In addition to that, we discussed how this misuse of Scripture and also just simply economic or political circumstances made other nations want to keep Jews out of their country. So that created this situation where Germany didn't want its Jewish populace. No other countries, aside from the Dominican Republic, were willing to take in Jewish populace or Jewish immigrants. And so Kristallnacht happens. Great Britain offers to take an unspecified number of Jewish children, and many Jewish families who realized at Kristallnacht that we can't turn back from this, we have to get out, that was the way forward. They couldn't go to another country because no other countries would let them in. And there was a massive influx of refugees as Germany annexed Austria, because a lot of German Jews had fled to Austria and then found themselves within the, within the Third Reich again, um, and annexed a portion of Czechoslovakia, and it was the same kind of situation. So there was really this crisis where Jewish families recognized we can't get out, but one country has offered to take our children. And you can just imagine the drama of that moment because this had to be a family in absolute desperation to be willing to put their child, in some cases, I, I talked to a man who was three years old when he went, to be willing to put their three-year-old on a train not knowing if they would ever see them again and hoping that they would be taken care of. But that, that is the, the drama and the desperation of this event that these families were willing to give up their children to complete strangers.